Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show today, Jeremy Kyle, the war on abortion rights and Change UK. The DNA test is our show that Ash is not the child's The broadcaster on ITV saying that now is the right time for the Jeremy Kyle show to end. The couple split up after he failed the show's famous lie detector test. A week later, he was found dead. It's disgraceful, it's bear baiting. That's all it's ever been. It's, an att- it's attacking poor people. ITV has axed the Jeremy Kyle show, its most popular daytime show, after 14 years and 3,000 episodes. A man who appeared on the show, Steve Diamond, was found dead last Thursday, a week after filming. The precise circumstances of Diamond's death are not yet known, but it follows the deaths of two Love Island contestants and has raised questions about reality TV's duty of care to its participants. The Jeremy Kyle show has also long been controversial, with many accusing the show of vilifying the working class. Tom, what are your thoughts on this? So just by way of kind of introduction, I guess, Jeremy Kyle, particularly for international listeners um, who might not know what it is, it's, it's this kind of talk show. It's a sort of pound shop, Jerry Springer, mm. Brit- British version, in which people come on to talk through their relationship issues, paternity issues. Are they cheating on their partner? Is that their baby? That kind of thing. And one of the things they offer is this lie detector test. Um, and this gentleman, the 63-year-old man, he went on the show with his partner, apparently was crying through the filming of it. He didn't pass the lie detector test um, and was found dead a week later. ITV, as you were saying, have have canned this. And this really came, as you were gesturing to, after this kind of chorus of condemnation from a lot of commentators, certain MPs. And it was really wrapped up in the sense that not only was this a case of there not being good aftercare on the show, that there wasn't enough attention given to the people who had appeared on it after they left. It was also wrapped up in this idea that Jeremy Carl itself was a kind of malign force, that it was really low TV and it exploited the people who, who worked on it. But I think before we get into all of that, and we should talk about all of that, I think the one thing that's really important to stress is that you need to be very careful about oversimplifying why anyone commits suicide. And this is something that actually the Samaritans have on their website. They always point journalists to when reporting on people's suicides is to avoid this, as they put it, oversimplification, just because 90% of people who do um, commit suicide, according to the Samaritans, have either a diagnosed or an undiagnosed mental health problem. The question of what triggers a suicide can be incredibly misleading. It's very unlikely to be one single incident and we should avoid reporting it as such. And whilst it's inevitable that people are going to make these kind of connections and that things are going to fit into certain people's narratives, I think it's important that we make clear at the start of this that when people do make that kind of a choice, they do so for very complicated reasons and often for ones that we won't fully understand. And I think the the way in which in recent days this suicide has been used pretty explicitly, it feels like, to fit into some people's narrative and some people's general dislike of this show, I think is pretty unseemly, given those kind of facts that we need to bear in mind. It's interesting because the show itself is is accused of being, you know, an example of poverty porn, along with other shows like, you know, Benefit Street, the great British benefits handout, benefits Mm. Britain, life on the dole, these kinds of things, revelling in the misfortunes of particularly working class people, you know, when they're at their lowest points in their lives and their relationships. But what's interesting is that there is a, almost a dual snobbery in a way. There's there's kind of two types of snobbery. And I, and I kind of was interested in what um, the editor of the Daily Star said, Dawn Neeson, and she said, you know, these handriggers don't understand. Their contempt for the show is also a contempt for the people on it. You know, people do willingly agree to take part and people enjoy watching it. And it also made me think of that judge um, 10 years ago 
in 2007 there was a there was a judge who described the show as as human bear baiting mm. so there is this kind of chorus of condemnation from the great and the good that's been going on for the last you know 10 years or so and the people who watch it are seen as vaguely suspicious and their motives are seen as strange or or wrong and people are asked why they want to be titillated in this way so it's a very kind of complicated picture for how the sh- you know how the show fits into this kind of landscape yeah, I think that's something that's been missed in the discussion about Jeremy Carl is the fact that people choose to go on it, yeah. to consensually take part in a show that they know is not going, they're not going to come off well out of it at the end. I mean, no one goes on to Jeremy Carl thinking, I'm going to be the one person that gets the last laugh here. It's all, it's geared around and staged to be able for him to humiliate people. So you go on it, you know what you're going to get. And that's not to be unsympathetic to the guy who's committed suicide, but it's to say that, I mean, you know, what, what do you expect? You are going to get a hard time if you go on a show like this. And I definitely think that point about the discussion about the problem with a show like Jeremy Kyle, which I do think is, you know, it, it, is it poverty porn? It's the most crass kind of reality telly that mm. it's completely fake. Everything is set up and it's really, really degrading. It is like pornography. It, after you watch it, you feel kind of really disgusting for having taken part in that. However, the fear about the problem with Jeremy Carl has actually comes from this idea that ordinary people, working class people are susceptible to being whipped up into frenzies, are susceptible to being turned into animals by TV producers. And what we have to do is we have to not just ban Jeremy Carr, but we have to ban any kind of television that is influential on the masses that makes them behave like these debased Mm. kind of animals. And, you know, you don't need to look too far into other areas of politics where a distrust of the masses is kind of central. That kind of trend is here as well in relation to the reaction to Jeremy Carl. It's a kind of very paternalistic look at working class people that says we have to save them from ourselves. And I think that actually is more degrading than a kind of stupid reality TV show like Jeremy Carl. I thought it was interesting as well that ITV have now been accused of a certain level of hypocrisy about mm. this in relation to the comparison to Love Island, as you were talking about, Fraser, because Jeremy Carl has been on for 14 years and it's had one of its contestants commit suicide. Meanwhile, as we've known and as we talked about on this podcast, Love Island, huge show for ITV, has only been on for, what, four years? And it's had two of its contestants tragically commit suicide, Sophie Graydon and Mike Thalassitis. Now, there was a lot of discussion at the time, and we talked about it on this show. It was all very much about the the price of fame, Mm. uh, the question of social media, how that creates a new level of scrutiny. Again, was there enough aftercare? But there wasn't really any of this kind of clamour for the commentariat for it to be dumped, because it is well-loved. You know, it's a bit trashy, it's a bit low-rent, but in a kind of way that middle-class people can get behind. Whereas Jeremy Kyle has always been that kind of bête noir um, for reasons we've been talking about. And as we say, there's no necessary reason why one would necessarily be more damaging than the other, especially if you think of the people involved in these shows as human beings who are making their own decisions. And I think just to chime in on what you guys are saying, I completely agree. The thing that isn't really being talked about is that a lot of the revulsion with Jeremy Carr was about the people who watched it, not necessarily just the people who were on it. There was always this exploitative element that's really stirred people up on this show. The most extreme examples, you know, the guy who gets his, his face tattooed with a skull on it, all this kind of stuff, you know, really just kind of just like gawp at people that was a that was definitely a part of the show and something that made it very unseemly but a huge part of why people didn't like the show was the people who um, watched it and I think it was interesting that the phrase bear baiting the way that comes up because when people bring that up they're not really talking about the bear they're talking about the people who you know get that bloodlust thrill from watching it yeah. um, and it's hard not to conclude that when people are saying all oh, the world is a cleaner place now 
they're talking as much about the show itself as they are about the people they envision, you know, on a mid-morning still in their tracksuit bottoms watching this stuff. And I think it's, that's kind of unavoidable, really. I think that's true. And that one thing that caught my eye was the discussion around the shaming of these participants. It is unseemly and it does feel, you know, dirty to drag people in front of a huge audience and shame them for, you know, their infidelities or, or you know, their personal lives. But let's not forget that shaming is a, a daily occurrence on social media. And as soon as someone steps outside of politically correct orthodoxy, the same people who are, you know, complaining that this show is exploitative and trashy and, and shaming people and ruining their lives are quite happy to, you know, drag people through the mud, shame them, have their lives ruined, have them kicked out of their job, potentially have them arrested. So there is that same element of shaming going on all the time and in a way that isn't condemned in the same way. I also think we need to look at the question of, do we want to get into a situation in which we only have uh, moral TV, moral yeah. entertainment, and who decides what is the morals and you know what's the bar for what gets put on television? Because you know, you can make a lot of criticisms of reality TV and there are some, I talk about public shaming. I mean, has ever anyone watched Embarrassing Bodies or yeah. Naked Attraction? I mean, Naked Attraction is literally a show which gets people to stand in boxes naked and you point at them. I mean, there's a whole, <laughs> there's a whole lot of that out there and they're on Channel 4, you know, and no one criticises them, although it seems eminently weird to me that people would do that and psychologically damaging that you would have the nation pointing at your genitals. Mm. But then there's also some very good, I'm a really big fan of reality TV. You know, some of the stuff that's out there, I was a big fan of Big Brother. I like Gogglebox. I like 24 hours in A&E. There's human interest. There's something there. So, you know, I think most people's stomach does turn at Jeremy Carr because it's a partic- he is a particularly unpleasant man as well and he plays up to that (laughs) but when you come down to it if this is getting banned and now the commons is looking into it you know politicians are looking into it are we saying that we're going to have government you know stamped morals on television that's something that i don't think a lot of us would be too happy about so you have to temper the criticism of jeremy carl with the sense of you know freedom of television freedom to put on stuff that actually some people might find entertaining and some people might find disgusting. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free and we rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give a monthly one by going to spiked-online.com. This week, Alabama passed a law that turns abortion into a Class A felony. Any healthcare provider or doctor convicted of performing an abortion, even in cases of incest and rape, could face up to 99 years in jail. Over in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp this week signed the fetal heartbeat law, which will ban any abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, a point at which many women are not even aware that they're pregnant. Ella, what are your thoughts on this um, new attack on abortion rights? I think we have to take this really seriously because America is not playing around here. The implications for these two laws is really, really shocking and will drastically change women's lives in Alabama and Georgia. Um, Because essentially what it means is that even if you are raped in cases of incest, these kind of very extreme situations, which 
many other countries say that women should be allowed to have abortions in those situations, even in those situations it is illegal. And that means that if you get pregnant and you don't want it and you are in Alabama or Georgia, you are screwed. And that's it. Either you risk being criminalized or you have to have a child that you don't want to have. That's terrible for women's freedom. If we actually look at the content of these two bills, they are deeply shocking as well. The Alabama bill, HB 314, the text of it, just this, just for a taste of the kind of level at which pro-life campaigners are at in America, the text of it compares abortion to the deaths in the Holocaust, Soviet gulags, Khmer Rouge, Rwandan genocide. I mean, comparing women's choice over their bodily autonomy to the Holocaust is, you know, despicable. It's that kind of level that the pro-life movement is at. And if you look at the Georgia bill, the heartbeat bill, just to hammer home how restrictive this is, new technology means that doctors can detect a heartbeat, you know, as early as six weeks. Unless you are the kind of woman who takes a pregnancy test every time after you have sex, the likelihood is you will not find out that you're pregnant when you start getting this, that nauseous feeling in the morning until mm. after nine weeks. So this is going to mean that unless you are absolutely on it with checking your pregnancy at levels that no woman should have to be, you will not be able to have choice over whether you have a child or not. Mm. The problem that's come up in relation to the how we deal with this, and this is quite an interesting thing, is that in response to these bills, women have been suggesting some stunty protests. And Alyssa Milano, who's many of you will, listeners will know is famous from the hashtag MeToo movement, an actress, has suggested that women take part in a sex strike, which means don't have sex until you get given your abortion rights. Now, I wrote a column for Spikes this week saying that, that was, you know, bargaining with sex is a kind of very retrograde way of looking at women's sexual freedom, bodily <laughs> yeah. autonomy. And so I think we need a very coherent pro-choice campaign that looks at the morals of freedom of choice and the, you know, the wider discussion about bodily autonomy rather than simply stunty things talking about withholding sex from men. Mm-hmm. It's quite remarkable, actually, how obviously the pro-life anti-abortion position has has you know always been there and never went away but i mean really since roe v wade over the past four decades the attacks on abortion were a lot less overt you know there were restrictions designed to limit provision so limiting insurance coverage introducing waiting periods various legal hurdles put in the way and you know we have seen lots of abortion providers closed down Six states currently only have one abortion provider, according to the Guttmacher Institute. They do seem to be emboldened at this point where they are now prepared to actually, you know, take on Roe v. Wade and try and really undermine the constitutional protection for abortion. You know, the evangelicals seem to have the ear of Trump, this (laughs) not very moral Christian man. Mm. And they've succeeded in getting two conservative-leaning judges installed in the Supreme Court and I, and I suppose there is a real worry that this could genuinely tip the balance against mm. abortion. Well, that's exactly why they're doing it. And in terms of more and more restrictions being placed at the state level on abortion, it's not just Georgia and Alabama who've been doing this. Kentucky, Mississippi and Ohio have also passed fetal heartbeat bills. Arkansas moved up the um, cutoff point for legal abortions to 18 weeks of pregnancy recently. And they're doing this particularly because they want to fight with Roe v. Wade. Mm. And it seems like Alabama in particular, the hope is that this has already obviously been met with legal challenges that will go all the way up to the Supreme Court and with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh tipping the balance now that we could see an end to Roe v. Wade itself. And I think what 
a lot of this points to actually and reminds us of is that is the limits of Roe v. Wade. And this is something yeah. that we've talked about from time to time. And Frady made this point on Spikes around the time Kavanaugh was first nominated, kind of before the circus of, of the hearings. The, what the US experience has shown, she argues, is that the right to choose doesn't really get you very far if you can't access the procedure in the first place. And since Roe v. Wade, you know, most US states, as you say, Fraser, have enacted or attempted to enact laws to limit or regulate abortion. They might not have gone as far as they're going now, but it's always been there. You know, it was only in 1976 that Congress passed the Hyde Amendment, barring the use of federal funds to pay for abortion, which particularly hits um, women who rely on Medicaid, of course. So the situation that has been developing in the US isn't necessarily anything new. And it's the thing that it points to is that when you do have a kind of protection for it, like Roe v. Wade, it's obviously incredibly valuable to have that kind of constitutional safeguard on a woman's right to choose. But there are always going to be attempts to limit that by other means. And it feels like, as Ella was saying, the need for a kind of real fight back is obviously becoming um, stronger and sharper than ever, because what people saw as that that safeguard is, is really just eroding by the day, it feels like. One of the strangest aspects to the fight back, if you want to call it that, or at least the response to this bill has been to point out that all of the legislators, particularly in Alabama, are all white men. And, yeah. you know, if only there were some white women or black women in there. But completely bizarre, especially when public support for abortion is actually pretty high. Pew Research puts it at 58%. No difference between, really, between men and women. 60% of women think abortion should be legal all or most of the time. 57% of, of men think the same. It does worry me that actually what I believe to be the right side, the pro-choice side, it is not currently equipped to fight the right kind of campaign in favour of women's freedom and is more kind of interested in, in stunts, as Ella said, or snidey remarks about the you know <laughs> gender and skin colour of, of the people signing in these retrograde laws. This is going on in Northern Ireland. We have the kind of restrictive abortion laws in Northern Ireland, not as far as Georgia and Alabama. So, but, and campaigns there have been quite confused of late. You know, the whole discussion around transgender rights has meant that there's been a suggestion that we should talk about pregnant people mm. rather than pregnant women. And you just think, oh my God, kind of get yourself together and realize that actually pregnancy happens to women, sure. And so this is a women's freedom issue, but bodily autonomy and freedom of choice are not gendered concepts philosophically. I mean, this is a sense of, do you think that people should have the ability to control their own lives, to make decisions and to shape their own destiny? And for women to be able to do that, they have to have control over their bodily autonomy. They have to have access to abortion as early as possible and as late as necessary. And that kind of old school pro-choice slogan has kind of been dropped a bit because it makes people's who are pro-life hair stand on end. You know, the idea mm. that a woman should be able to have an abortion for any reason that she sees fit. And suddenly you have allegations of being a baby murderer thrown at you. You don't think that women should have any responsibility over uh, having contraception or any of these kind of things. It's really clear. And I think actually despite the fact that what's happening in America is genuinely frightening. I mean, it is genuinely worrying. The pro-choice community is faced with real opportunity because when things get tough, uh, you've got a space to make quite a radical argument mm. here. And I think that this should be the time internationally for the pro-choice movement to start making the only argument, which is that you can't have any ifs or buts on women's freedom. Either they have it or they don't. Yeah. So whether whether a woman wants to have an abortion because it's a Tuesday and she doesn't feel like it, or whether she wants to have an abortion because uh, she has been brutally raped by her brother, 
The fact is, do you put conditions on her freedom? And so arguing for access to abortion, for the decriminalization of abortion and for women's freedom in its totality is something, you know, it's a very exciting prospect. Mm. And I think a lot of people could get behind that. And just quickly to tack on to the question of the identity politics thing, it really does poison the pro-choice argument or at least distracts from what really should be focused on. Because you've got, as Ella was saying, the kind of the, all the concern around how transgenderism fits into all of this. The really lame, oh, it was 25 white guys who signed this kind of response, missing not only, as you say, the kind of the breakdown in terms of who supports abortion in the US, but, you know, the governor of Alabama, Kay Ivey, who will most likely sign this into law, is a woman. And I think it's just another kind of example of this tendency to kind of use abortion or try to co-opt abortion as kind of like an identitarian talking point mm. rather than a really crucial um, issue of women's freedom. And trying to use it as something you just kind of assert the rightness of on behalf of, of women everywhere rather than something that you argue for, which is a real shame because if ever there needs to be a strong argument made for abortion, it's in America right now. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. Change UK, the independent group, the breakaway party that was supposed to be the new hope for Remainers and Liberal centrists, has flopped decisively in the polls. The most recent Salvation poll puts them in seventh place for the Euro elections on just 4%. There is every possibility that they won't even manage to get a single MEP. To add salt to these wounds, this week their lead candidate in Scotland quit to support the Liberal Democrats. Tom, what went wrong for Change UK? <laughs> I, think, I think the argument is what went right, really, because of course, <laughs> Change UK, the Chuckers, Change UK slash the independent group, whatever they're going by this week, you know, they were really launched as this was going to be the new force in British politics formed out of these defectors from the Tory party and the Labour party, leaving mainly on the issue of Brexit, but also claiming to be concerned about anti-Semitism, among other issues, this idea that they were going to be the main stop Brexit force as the Liberal Democrats weren't really getting a look in, perhaps even a kind of UK on marsh that they were going to, you know, reclaim the centre ground, the radical centre, as they like to call it, <laughs> deliver a second referendum, break the mould, all the rest of it. It's just gone tits up and it's gone tits up from the very beginning. And what we, I think we're seeing at the moment is the fact that, you know, it was never a viable proposition in the first place and that's just colliding with reality. So yeah. when they launched the European Parliament elections, it was it, ever since then, it's been one kind of gaffe or mini scandal after another. First, they had a number of candidates step down literally within hours of the launch because of old tweets that seem to be quite dodgy, racist, xenophobic, <laughs> despite the fact they were posing as the kind of anti-Farage, anti-Little England of force in British politics. One of their candidates, a guy called Ali Sadjadi, had previously tweeted, quote, when I hear that 70% of pickpockets caught on the London Underground are Romanian, it kind of makes me want Brexit. And that was kind of just the start, really. You know, there was the issues over their name. They were the independent group. Then they, they were the Tiggers. They changed it to Change UK. Then they made it Change UK dash the independent group to make sure they kept the tig a bit, I guess. There was their logo, which came out as this kind of three black bars next to their name, kind of looked like a printing error. There was their battle bus, which everyone's been laughing at this week, which considering these are people who think that Brexit was basically won by a nice shiny bus. I've, mm. I've not really put much effort into theirs. As you've said, we've had the um, Change UK MEP candidate in Scotland defected Lib Dems. There was an earlier case of that as well. 
it's been a bit of a roller coaster. And I think the upshot of all of it is just, as you say, Change UK are languishing in the polls. They've been beaten by the Brexit party in London, which is fascinating. And it seems that they've single-handedly revived the Liberal Democrats, um, who, particularly since the local <laughs> elections, are feeling a lot more happy with themselves. So I think it's yet more proof that... Um, the only people who really wanted this new centrist anti-Brexit party were people who were kind of already in it or reporting on it. And I think it also shows hilariously that these kind of Blairites and Cameroons, the people who supposedly understood marketing and how to yeah. win, um, haven't got the foggiest about either of those two things. I think that's the most extraordinary thing in, in particular that, you, you know, your last point is that they, they really do not stand for anything in particular. And all they have is, is the ability to market themselves, or, uh, supposedly. And they, you know, they've got a nice PR company. It's called the, the and company. They do campaigns for Toyota, Lexus, Argos, Prince's Trust, the Times. They have Emmanuel Macron's digital strategist. <laughs> and yet it is still a complete flop. And the reason it's a complete flop is that. Nobody is interested in their political offering, which is, the, you know, the thing that they missed from the start. There is simply not a wide audience for liberal centrism, or at least not one that is big enough that they would be prepared to defect from one of the two main parties who are, let's face it, offering pretty much liberal centrism, but maybe with a tiny bit of leaving the EU. One of my favourite things has been the dawning realisation of, you know, SW1, that this is the case, because, you know, when they were first launched, there was so much excitement, particularly from, you know, Broad Street columnists. You know, there's an amazing column in The Guardian that even said that the Lib Dems should act decisively and join the independent group. I mean, yeah. how silly there does that a, look now? <laughs> there was that leaked memo at the time, which is hilarious to look back on, because it's literally a matter of a um, case of weeks ago, where um, this leaked Chuck memo talked about how they were going to get ready to steal all the Lib Dems <laughs> donors and all. There was going to be mass defections. If anything, it's been in the other direction <laughs> recently. It's hard not to take the piss, isn't it? Even yeah. I was trying to find their website, Change UK, nothing, Tiggers, nothing, the independent group, nothing. Their website's called voteforchange.uk. So even that in itself is confusing. <laughs> if you try to get a handle on what their actual policies are, they don't have any policies. It's really interesting if you read the literature on their website. Okay, their main statement is that we will get things done based on evidence, not mm. ideology. And that just tells you everything you need to know about this organisation, that they are actively against having any ideas, <laughs> no mind ideology. Most people will remember that very amusing interview with Anna Subri when they first kicked off on Newsnight when she was quizzed about her policies and she said, no, that's the old politics. You know, the old politics is having ideas and uh, a structure and a forward thinking kind of program. No, no, the new politics is this bizarre kind of empty shell yeah. of you know, I think I actually think it's even generous to call them liberal centrists because even centrism has a kind of you know has an ideology behind it. There's some, mm. it's got some substance to it. They don't even have that. I mean, they argue that the two main parties have moved to the ideological fringes, and that's mm. why they've come together. I mean, what we've been unspiked. We've been arguing for years that you couldn't fit a cigarette paper between the two main parties, and their response to Brexit has proved that to be ever the case. You know, both. Yeah both the Labour and Conservatives are incapable of actually putting forward any kind of new ideas in relation to Brexit or anything else. And so the idea that you need more centrist than the two parties that have moved towards the centre for the last decades is a bit weird. I think that rather than just taking the mick out of them, we should also look at them quite seriously because the kind of stuff some of their MEPs has been coming out with has been you know, really quite objectionable. 
Gavin Esler calling Brexit voters the village idiots yeah. being one of them. Most of their MEPs going for not just the Brexit party, but Brexit party supporters in kind of like, you know, it's almost like school playground style attacks on Twitter is kind of bizarre. Uh, they really are full of hatred for ordinary people. And the closer it gets to polling day for the European elections, the more this is coming out. The problem with Change UK is I think they're a small group of politicians who have taken the leap and revealed themselves to be, you know, kind of so hostile to democracy and really desirous of this kind of just technocratic way of doing politics. They're just the people that have taken the leap and, you know, are going to pay for it. Most other politicians in politics at the moment have to some degree, in some shade, a similar point of view Mm -hmm. that actually we shouldn't be doing this. We want the status quo. I mean, it's ridiculous that they're called Vote for Change, Change UK, when they're campaigning for the status quo. Change UK is the kind of face of the most crass and insulting anti-democratic politics that we have today. But they are just the face of it. In the background, I think they're hiding a mass of politicians who aren't quite brave enough to go down with this sinking Mm. ship of Change UK, but who have similar sentiments. I completely agree with that. I think the big danger is that Change UK, we should enjoy them while they're here, don't get me wrong, but there is a danger that they become a distraction because the most significant remainder in the country is not Chakramuna or Anna Subri. It's arguably someone like Keir Starmer, you know, um, the most crucial Remainer party is the Labour Party at this point. And of course, even the Tory party has a huge section of it, which is, if not actively resisting Brexit, then doing all it can to at least slow things down to the point where something else might happen. And we've seen this week, you know, you had um, Jeremy Corbyn come out and try to just equivocate on this issue, which is what has been the Labour leadership strategy throughout all of this to pretend that Brexit is kind of a non-issue. Meanwhile, Keir Starmer, Deputy Leader Tom Watson, um, Shadow Foreign Secretary, Emily Thornbury all coming out and in one way or another gesturing towards a, a second referendum. And I think the other thing is that we've got to remember about the Labour Party as well. You know, the, the best outcome in terms of the Labour Party being involved in this is a is a customs union incredibly soft Brexit, yeah. you know, which is not actually that far away from the Tory position. But nevertheless, that's the best outcome we could be talking about now. It's also incredibly likely that the condition of them backing any um, Tory deal, which seems very much unlikely at this point, would be some sort of second referendum. And certainly a condition of if they um, managed to cobble together some sort of coalition government or confidence and supply arrangement with the SNP or the Lib Dems, whoever, would be a second referendum. And whilst, again, there's obviously forces within the Tory party, they are the kind of main block which is pushing us towards either a kind of further um, delay of this process to the point where maybe, you know, there's an opportunity for a second referendum, a revocation or whatever. And I think that, again, the kind of uh, the focus on Change UK can distract a little bit from that. I think the only thing, the other interesting thing I point out is that I think it is interesting the way in which they are kind of so open about not having ideology. And it's kind of like it's both true and false at the same time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they do have an ideology insofar as it's anti-democratic, it's technocracy. But it also does go to show what kind of hollow politicians technocracy produces in a sense. You know, they don't really have a full grasp of what it is that they want. What they know they want is for politics to be done in a certain way, which is over the heads of the public and in many respects over the heads of politicians as well. You know, (laughs) they want this sorted out um, by experts in Brussels committee rooms rather than even by themselves as elected politicians. So I think the kind of ideological vacuum at the centre of them is, is quite revealing. But in a sense, that's the sort of style which has been developed over the past 20, 30 years via EU membership and also just how politics has been done for that period of time. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. 
In the meantime, for more great Spike content or to give us a donation, just go to spikes-online.com.